previously on Flowers for Zoe, Stories for Dennis. Yeah, nobody was telling you what to do that night. No, except you. Yeah. 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 I didn't look at it like that before until you um you you brought it up. I did not see it like that. And now coming up on the show. I've worked just a little bit with addictions um, in the downtown east side in Vancouver. There's a lot of trauma and they use substances to self-medicate. And what I found is so many of my clients there had such massive hearts and such big emotions that addiction was used to just dull the pain, dull the emotions. Mm. And so... Honestly, I think people who are recovering from addiction are some of the bravest people in the world. On today's podcast, we talk with Jennifer Van Wyke about emotions and a whole bunch of other stuff. If you find today's episode activating, please reach out and talk to somebody. If you find the discussion helpful, please share the link with others. If you would like to learn more about Jennifer's work or get free access to the Grounding Heart Connection videos, you can find it at www.vanwykeconsulting.com. That's www.vanwykconsulting.com. Welcome, everybody, to podcast number 25, and we have a guest today. Lara, can you please do some introductions? Yes, I'm happy to welcome Jennifer Van Wyke, who is here. Jennifer, what an amazing bio, humanitarian, an author, a registered clinical counselor who is the director of Van Wyke Consulting for over 10 years. She has received a Medal of Honor from the Canadian government for her humanitarian work during the Ebola response in West Africa and has set up programs all over the world helping people to recover from war, natural disasters, and epidemics. Her book, The Good Thing About Mortar Shells, Choosing Love Over Fear, was a best-selling author in multiple categories at its release in 2020. The book is about how to deeply connect with your heart and intuition to hear the message your emotions are trying to give you so you can have the life you want. So we're excited to have you here. I'm, I'm glad so you can... excited to be here. Great. So, you know, we podcast and have conversations that bring in the lived experience of substance use and recovery. Daniel and Zoe and I have been having conversations about her recovery journey. And one of the things that, you know, comes up time and time again is the the challenges with emotions that come up when on a recovery journey. So we're excited to have you here because we're hoping to get a better understanding of addictive behavior and how, you know, how our emotions kind of layer in and can be a real source of our suffering. And, and I'm a newbie, so you're going to have to go slow with me. I mean, I, I have a question right off the bat. Can you just explain to me, 
again because I've I've been told before, but what are emotions? I would say emotions are often signals or signs about something. Uh, they can be really chaotic. They can be really unpredictable. They don't mean you have to obey them, but they are kind of like little children where you do need to hear them and hear what they say. And then often just hearing them, they'll evaporate. It's super bizarre. Uh, and then other times when it is a bit more persistent, then it's really important that you kind of take some time to settle in and understand what message it is, because it's not always obvious. I've I've never heard it described that way. Emotions <laughs> are messages. Yeah. I mean, so what's the message? That's that is the ultimate question, isn't it? So um, I a lot of my work is based on emotion focused therapy. And in that, I mean, I've got some videos on my YouTube channel because it's a bit complex. You've got primary and secondary emotions. And the idea is that primary emotions are that initial emotional reaction you have. There's just a few basic primary. So maybe fear, maybe anger, uh, maybe joy, maybe love. That's your initial reaction. But for the more negative primary emotions like fear, for example, will often have another emotional reaction to that. So because fear is such a disempowering, you feel so vulnerable, it's it's such a out of control feeling, often people will have a emotional response of anger on top of that, because that's much more empowering. So the example I give is, if you have your parent and your child is lost, and they go missing, and then you find them. Often, the first response is, where were you? How come? <laughs> Why did you leave without telling? Right? It's this anger. And it's not, you're not actually angry. You're actually scared, right? But anger is what you project out onto the world or or how you, uh, the emotion that comes up because being scared is too scary, actually. And those secondary emotions are really important. It's important to label them and feel them, but not stop. You have to get down to the root if you really want to get your need met, right? Because the root of that fear is the fear that you're going to lose someone or that you're alone or that there's that disconnect. And so to meet that need, you need to have that discussion of like, listen, I love you so much. I worry about you when you go missing. I, I need you to tell me where you are, right? As right. opposed to you're grounded. I'm never going to let you out of my sight, right? The, those are two very different conversations. That that kind of brings it to how can I change my emotions or control them in the situation? Great question. I get it a lot. The bad news is, is you can't control your emotions. The good news is, is they don't need to control you. So one thing that I find really important and that I do with so many of the people I work with is I talk about, um, it's not you having the emotion, it's your heart having the emotion. And this creates a, a separation. If you are irritated, then it's like irritation is driving this bus and this bus is gonna go wherever irritation wants to go. But if your heart is irritated, then it's like you're driving the bus and there's irritation that's a passenger and 
it can say whatever it needs to say, but you still get to decide where that bus is going to go. Okay. I like that. that uh, yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And I do find I've worked just a little bit with addictions um, in the downtown east side in Vancouver. Um, and there is a lot of comorbidity. There's a lot of trauma or a lot of mental health illness. And they use substances to self-medicate, right? And what I found is so many of my clients there had such massive hearts and such big emotions that addiction was used to just dull, dull the pain, dull the emotions. Right. And so honestly, I think people who are recovering from addiction are some of the bravest people in the world because they are facing some of these emotions that are so big and so painful that the rest of us can spend our whole life avoiding right? Like that's what TV is. It's about avoiding our emotions <laughs> oftentimes or brunch or, you know, um, many people can spend their whole life avoiding that. And to, to face it is very petrifying for a lot of people. It, it can be some of their biggest fears. And mm -hmm. so I think when you're on that recovery program, you're really looking all of those things directly in the face. I just have so much admiration for this. That's what our, our the past year of our life has has been like is kind of just facing a lot of fears, a lot of um things that we we don't have the power to control and then grabbing a hold of the things that we could. It's been hard. There's been a lot of emotions, I'll just put it that way. I believe it because uh emotions kind of they live in our body. When we numb out like you can numb out your emotions, but you can't just numb out one emotion. It's it's an all or nothing thing. If you numb out pain, then you also numb out joy and excitement and you, know, you just become more robotic. Whereas when you start to unnumb, all those emotions can come back. You can't control the emotions that come up, but you can always control how you react to them. How seriously are you going to take them? Are you going to listen to them? Are you going to obey them? Yeah. What do you want to do? You know? Right. So a lot of our conversations have been conversations around understanding addictive behaviors involving, you know, emotions and layers of discomfort. And so many of our conversations have kind of touched on emotional discomfort, physical discomfort, emotions that are sometimes connected to urges or emotions connected to beliefs um, about, you know, what does this say about me or how am I doing? Yeah. Yeah. So I always like, this isn't my idea. I think Deepak Chopra talks about it. I've heard about it in many different cultures, but the idea of the difference between pain and suffering. Pain is unavoidable. Someone betrays us. We stub our toe. Um, you know, like uh, <laughs> someone in our life dies or or is mean, right? That that's pain, and that hurts. And there's not really an avoidance. We can't avoid that pain. We can't control what's going to happen. We can make healthy boundaries, maybe about who we let in our lives, but still, life happens, right? Um, so pain is unavoidable. Suffering, on the other hand, is totally avoidable. Suffering is the meaning that we make about ourselves, about others, about the world when we experience that pain. So for example, if someone betrays you, 
that's painful, full stop, right? Um, but we can create more suffering on top of that by saying, oh, I'm not very, like, I'm not good enough, or I'm not lovable, or I'm never going to have friends, or any of those thoughts or beliefs that we say to ourselves, that's what creates suffering over and above that pain. If we're feeling like we're suffering and we, we're stuck, that's a signal from our emotions that maybe there's some sort of belief that we're doing that's perpetuating or keeping us stuck here. It's a, it's just a, a neon light being like, look at your thinking or look at your beliefs. See if you can heal this wound of yours. I've been interested in Gabor Mate's, I, and I'm going to get this wrong, so please forgive me, but his kind of definition of drug addiction always leads down to some great emotional pain from within. Hmm. But he always seems to pinpoint this great fear that causes someone to use drugs that are, I guess, downers. In psychology in general, I would say, it's this idea that our thoughts create our emotions. What I found, however, is that it's a two-way street. Sometimes our emotions really create our thoughts. For example, when you're struggling with depression, it's almost like you've, you're in this file folder of depression and that's open in your mind. And so when you look back at life, all you're seeing is all the memories that are filed under depression. So it feels like you've always been depressed. And then the future looks really bleak. And so it seems like you always will be depressed. But as soon as you get out of that file folder and go into the folder of happiness, then the same thing happens, right? So these emotions really affect your perspective and your memory emotions are are really like they are so powerful actually even sometimes even more powerful i would say than our thinking well you know? i mean if everything you've said so far is true and i believe it is i mean that means emotions are everything i, I mean, think so <laughs> i mean ab absolutely everything and we spend a lot of time with a very small range of emotions that have been deemed okay, like the safe emotions. And mm -hmm. so uh, when we invite a conversation about feeling all of our emotions, feeling all the feels, it, it sounds to me like then it really comes down to what we, how we choose to work with our emotions mm -hmm. and what we do to get comfortable feeling all the feels that we feel. I mean, I think the first step is accepting the fact that you're not going to be comfortable. It's not going to be comfortable. Right. So get comfortable in being uncomfortable because it sucks. This is, I am so passionate about this. This is my whole life and it's still uncomfortable for me. <laughs> you know, it's, I was going to ask you, does it get better? <laughs> no, I'm sorry. <laughs> but, but one thing that I do know is the fear we have in feeling our emotions is astronomically bigger than the actual feeling of the emotions. So uh, I can be a pretty tough therapist in that I really strongly <laughs> encourage my clients to, to face some of their deepest fears, right? And I do that by 
like sitting beside them. I'm with them. I teach them grounding is huge, 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 right? Of grounding is being in your body. You cannot process emotions if you're not in your body, because that's where your emotions live, right? Mm-hmm. Um, with people with a history of trauma, grounding is very uncomfortable. They do not want to be in their body, right? Your body is kind of what has all the pain. It has all the bad memories. It's That's the last place you want to be. And so it's just being patient with yourself, loving yourself anyways, and still trying to ground, grounding with someone else. We're human. We're, we love, like, the reason I have a job is because there's something powerful. There's something magical and I don't understand it. But when you do something with someone else, it's so powerful. Or when you show when you yeah ground with someone else it's so much more powerful than just doing it on your own although i highly highly recommend doing it on your own all the time um when you face something that you're really scared of if you can just hold someone's hand while you're doing it they don't have to solve anything for you just being there witnessing it with you that's so healing and powerful you know so don't feel like you have to do these things alone find people that you can trust. Maybe they're professionals. Maybe they're people that you really have in your life that, that are, are able to handle those kinds of like able to sit with you as you face these things, you know? Um, But yeah, good news is it's not even remotely as scary as we think or painful as we think it is. When I do it with clients, honestly, it will max last. I'll have them really feel their fear I can't, it's never happened for more than one or two minutes, right? There's oh, often, yeah, there's often this fear that like, oh, if I feel this sadness or this grief, I'm never going to, like, I'm going to, it's going to destroy me or I'm going to feel like that forever. I'm going to cry for the rest of my life. Um, and that's just the fear of feeling that sadness, that sadness or grief. It, your body is so wise. It will only take it in small chunks, you know? Oh, so you no. just feel it and then- it will pass, alas, you know, and then you, another time you can feel it again. Um, the metaphor I say is you can't eat a whole baguette all at once. You're going to choke, right? Your body knows this. You mm-hmm. just have to take off little pieces and bite it. And then that's how you digest it and let it go. Um, let me, you've obviously worked with people that have had a type of anxiety, a social anxiety. How prevalent is that in our society? social anxiety anxiety and depression are really linked and i think north america we are so independent and so individualistic that we have made it difficult or we've forgotten how to genuinely connect with other people and so Mm -hmm. i think that really does that increases anxiety and depression much more than in the other cultures i've worked with where you just don't have privacy Right. Yeah. And one of the things we know is that addiction is very isolating. And for so many people that are struggling with addiction, and Zoe, you've talked about this, we've had conversations about how isolating it can feel, how alone you can feel in it. How do you increase your emotional resiliency? Um, When it's brand new, and you Mm -hmm. may not have been here before. Often social anxiety, I think, 
is a result. It's this um, war within ourselves of wanting so much to be accepted by others, but fearing so much that they'll reject us, right? So you want to connect with others, but then you don't want to show them your real self because if you do and then they reject you, that will destroy you, right? It's like a yeah. quagmire. It really is. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you want to share, you you feel like you need to share, but you just can't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so to part of like what makes the stakes so high is when other people's acceptance of us is the only acceptance that we'll get. And it's the only thing that makes us matter, right? Whereas if you can accept yourself, uh, then other people's acceptance, I, I say it's like birthday cake. It tastes delicious, but does not a meal make, right? Like if you just live off other people's acceptance, you're going to have vitamin K deficiency. You're going to be malnourished, it's, all that sort of thing. It right? just doesn't work. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So when you can learn to really accept yourself, to give yourself that sense of worth that you are worthy just from being born like you you have that innate worth and when you can really kind of believe that and give kindness to yourself then when other people hurt you um it still hurts that's unavoidable right but it doesn't destroy you because you're not living off of that now i i have another question for you it's a little bit off topic but um and and forgive me, but you sound like a very grounded person, and you have a sense of, uh, of course, this emotional intelligence about you, and you're humanitarian. So I put you in this category of, there's a special person over here, <laughs> and I don't mean to be flattering. I really don't. It's just that's the way it is. My question to you is, do you envision a time in our lifetime where people like you are in more of a decision-making role Mm. rather than just always advocating Mm. and what kind of world would that be Mm. um interesting question yeah i have to say i am so impressed with the the gen z generation now i feel like um so i consider myself a highly sensitive empath which is oh, like oh really okay yeah the really big heart goes crazy it's a curse until you learn how to <laughs> handle it right um and i i would think actually a lot of people suffering from addiction are similar to be honest um and i think so uh, the highly sensitive person is a term that Elaine Aaron created in the nineties. She coined this. And then empath is also this kind of other, you feel other people's emotions. So um, yeah, this is an amalgamation of both of them. And when she created that term, she found that there was only 20% of the population is this type of personality. Wow. Right. But what I'm seeing And of course, this is just my perspective. So who knows what it is, but it feels like there's, especially with the youth, it feels like they are so much more aware 
of global warming, of injustices. Like they're really trying to, it feels like they're much more empathic. They're, they've got these massive hearts. So I have a lot of optimism and hope, you know? So, so do I, I am so impressed with kids these days. I mean, you know, just as an example, I remember talking to my son about racism because I grew up at a time where there really was racism right in your face. Mm-hmm. And when I tried to talk to my son about it, he looked at me like I was an alien. Because in <laughs> his school system, there was no racism. Yeah. And, and I mean, what a beautiful place that is. So, I mean, good job to us. We did a great job with this generation. We really did. As far as the education system goes. Well, yeah. And I feel like even as humanity, we've been in this pendulum swing of like intellect and the mind and emotions are bad and you shove them away because they're so unpredictable and mysterious. Right. And so we've been very head focused for hundreds of years. And I think now we're kind of starting to, to swing a little bit more into understanding emotions like I'm watching reality tv and I see these like 23 year old guys crying on tv and and there's no shame in it and I just absolutely love it like there's there's this yeah the it's available for people now much more than it ever was when I was growing up you know when you look at society like that and you you see these changes I mean I guess that kind of comes when you get older but it's it's fascinating to, to watch it change it's just fascinating yeah 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 so I think I think there'll be a lot more I think we're we're learning uh, and I'm not uh I believe that the head and the heart need to be connected and in harmony um and that's where we make the best decisions right and I think we're really we're, we're really getting to that point so I think there's going to be a lot of decision makers that have that emotional and intelligence yes i couldn't agree more (laughs) yeah absolutely so when you say head and heart i go right to pragmatic practical you know um things when it comes to working with families where families are challenged by um, somebody who is struggling and they're worried about them they're worried about them they're so so concerned there's things that they want for their loved one. And of course, we know that when we're working with um, subs- problematic substance use, you know, readiness has a lot to do with stages of change and somebody's readiness. Um, but, you know, we often hear from care providers who are just so stressed. Mm-hmm. And so when you talk about, you know, connecting the head and the heart, you might have somebody who is has a lot of really strong, you know, thoughts about what they think needs to happen. And a lot of big feels, worries, um, and there's a lot of suffering there. I mean, first, what comes to mind automatically is these care providers have to take care of their own emotions and not put it on uh, the other person, the addict or the recovering person to take care of their emotions, right? So if I'm anxious about somebody, that's my anxiety. And the person I'm anxious, it's not their responsibility to make me feel less anxious. It's my responsibility, 
right? So then you need to take ownership of, okay, I'm really anxious about this. What does my heart need in this moment? And just so you know, all your listeners, um, they can have access to this heart connection visualization that I recorded, which is how you do all these things. It's it's absolutely as, I, essential in my in my oh, point of view. Should we? Right? We'll get the links and we'll we'll put them. Yeah, up. We'll, yeah, yeah, we'll do that for sure. Um, so you. If you're feeling anxious, then you need to connect with your heart and you take care of your heart. She's feeling anxious. He's feeling anxious. Okay, give it a cuddle. Give it a basket full of puppies, whatever you need, right? Um, make that feel better. And then you can kind of go to the next phase, right? Um, I have another visualization where it's just literally a cord connecting your brain to your heart and then them both pulsing at the same time so that they're you know, and just imagining that over and over again, however many times you need, and that gets your brain and your heart kind of on that same page. Um, when you do that heart connection visualization, uh, your brain can give your heart some very important information like, hey, um, this is not like their path is not your path. You need to be the best version of yourself or you need to take care of yourself so you can be the best support system for them. Um, just because this person did this and this doesn't mean you are a bad person or a bad parent or whatever beliefs that maybe are going on in there that are creating that suffering, right? Um, so there can be that dialogue between the brain and the heart. Oh, I love that. <laughs> yeah, I, what do you I love like about that a it? lot. All of it, it's just like, I'm literally picturing myself in a situation and and just feeling what you're saying and I just think that it would be so so empowering to look at it that way it just it feels like you have some type of control over your emotions at that point you know even though you might not as you were saying before like just to to feel like you have that little bit of control to where you can just understand it and it would just make you feel that much better in any any situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I've had situations where I'm really mad at someone. And if I take time to just connect with my heart, just empathize with her, mm-hmm. like, oh, you feel that that wasn't fair, blah, blah, blah. You know, it really can calm me down so that I can then have a much more productive conversation right. with that person I'm angry with, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I love it. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad. <laughs> <laughs> I love visualizations just because it kind of takes in your subconscious, but then it's also something that you can control because it's your imagination. Right. right. You can, it feels like you can control something like it's, it's there and you can control it. And that alone is very helpful. Right. Especially when you feel like everything else is out of your control and that's the one thing that you can control it's it helps yeah. well and your body can't tell the difference between your imagination and reality I always have people imagine that you're wow. eating a lemon right now and you're biting into that lemon and the juice is squeezing into your mouth right saliva starts being produced yes. you know <laughs> you know you're not eating that lemon right but your body is just like I don't yeah. care I'm still gonna go uh, I'm going with this <laughs> <laughs> 
right? So let's use that to our advantage. Oh, that's, oh, that's amazing. Yeah, I love that. Well, everything that I was wondering prior to this, you said it all. It's just so incredible to interact with all three of you. I love the dynamic, you know, of of your three different perspectives. And it's just such an incredible thing that you guys are doing here. And Zoe, your courage is like, I am really humbled by your courage. So thank you so much for letting me witness that and be a part of it.